0: Hello Fellowship, I have an important announcement today that requires your prayer and participation. As a church body, it's time to nominate new elders to the Elder Board, as four of our current elders will be completing their Terms of Service next summer. In our church governance structure, the Elder Board is made up of godly men who make critical and significant decisions on behalf of all the congregations of Fellowship. We are not a church with elders, we're a church led by elders. The nomination and recognition process are very important to the health of our church family. And here is what we're asking members of fellowship to do. First, please pray for the elder nomination process and discern whether you should nominate someone to the office of elder. Then, if you feel led by the Holy Spirit to make a nomination, please visit fellowshipnwa.org forward slash elder nomination and complete the online form. Read the accompanying document entitled Qualifications of an Elder before making your nomination. Or if you prefer a paper nomination form, you may pick one of those up in the worship center foyer at each campus. The nomination form will be attached to the qualifications of an Elder document. Please mail paper nominations to the church office on the Rogers campus to the attention of the elders. The deadline for making a nomination is December 19th. Please pray for your elders as we initiate this process. Our desire is to be sensitive and responsive to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And finally, we would like to thank Rod Easley, Steve Lampkin, Dick Nervig, and Steve Weber for their years of service as elders. They have served the Lord faithfully and diligently during their tenure and have represented you well. When you see them, please thank them personally. Blessings to each of you for your prayers and participation in this phase of the elder nomination process. Thank you.
1: Happy Saturday, Mosaic. How are we doing? Whoa! I'll take it. Hey, happy December too. Crazy. I don't know about you guys, but I'm really excited to get to celebrate tonight with you. Um, We're in the middle of Advent, and we actually have some really special things that obviously you guys know of and we do uh, during this season, one of which actually in the last couple years, one of the members of our prayer team from the body wrote these really special prayers for us. Um, So I'm going to invite you to stand with us as we celebrate Jesus as the King of Peace, both for the world and for our own hearts. So... You can be still, you can read this with me, whatever would bless you, but let these words wash over you as you remember this good news. I'm gonna turn around so I can see. (laughs) Who is this king who came that our bondage would cease, who entered into our darkness to offer his peace? Who is this king who came with delight to still our thoughts and quiet our chaos? Jesus, king of peace. You say, My peace is for you, and what you've won for us, Christ, no man could take, that we may eat at your table for all of our days. Oh, to draw near to you, our King, to taste and to see that there's nothing as rich as your presence indwelling. Good shepherd, there is no smile more confident, no voice more sure, no safer dwelling than here in your pasture. So Christ who came to us, we now come to you just simply to gaze. The strife, the noise, the fear, it all slowly fades as we are face to face.
2: Dwell in us, may it be so. You can take a seat. Um, I'm going to welcome Tom Tumor up to the stage, the leader of our prayer team here at Fellowship Mosaic, to lead us through our monthly prayer pause.
3: Thanks, Tom. Mm, thanks, Scott. Well, good evening. Tonight, surprise, surprise, we're going to focus in our prayer pause on Emmanuel, God with us, God here among us. And so, if you can just take a deep breath. Or maybe three. I don't know about you or how many you need, but I need a few. So let's just breathe deeply tonight. And as we do, acknowledge, God, you are here with us. One of my favorite promises that Jesus gave is in John 14, 16 and 17. And he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth who abides with you and will be in you. And so Jesus promised that the Spirit would be with us forever. So again, take a minute right now and thank him that he lives within you and ask him to help you hear him tonight and experience him as Emmanuel. In fact, thank him with these words. God, thank you that you live within me. God, thank you that you live within me. The very first passage of scripture I ever memorized was Isaiah 41:10, where it says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will hold you up with my righteous right hand. And the beauty of Christ within us is we don't have to do life alone. And I don't know about you, but fears assail. And so I'd like us now to just name, God, what are some of those fears that are I'm struggling with right now? Name them before Him. And then ask Him to help you. Thank Him that He promises that He will help you. Father, thanks that we don't have to fear because we don't have to do life on our own, but that you walk with us every step of the way. And so may fears lose their power today and in the days ahead as we draw near to you. Thank you. Amen.
4: Amen. Stand
2: with us, and sing. Sing the good news, church.
4: God, our hearts have turned away. By His grace, in a manger lay the Savior.
2: Us. Feel your peace right now King Jesus Emmanuel. Thank you for dwelling in us, thank you for giving us peace
4: with
2: For change us to enter in, to show us your peace. Amen. compare. hands out in front of you somehow open them up and just feel his embrace for a moment feel the light of the world embracing you with his love with his attention he sees you he hears you he speaks to you Lord thank you for dwelling in us Church, we're about to um, have our time offering, and we've been doing a liturgy for a while now, reading and offering prayer together, and we're gonna keep doing it during Advent, so will you read this aloud with me? O oh Father, giver of all, every good and perfect gift comes from you. We ask you to accept these gifts and use them to your glory. May they bring shelter to the homeless, comfort to the sick, rest to the weary, and hope to the hopeless. As you multiply the offering of fish and loaves, multiply these to accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. We give freely and not under compulsion, for all we have is yours, Lord. Nothing we can give could match your great gift to us, your Son and your Spirit. Amen. stage for the reading of the passage tonight, as well as the lighting of the Advent candle. Thanks, Kings.
5: Hmm. Thank you, and mosaic. it's good to be here and be on stage again and see all your faces again. It's been a long time. My name is Stephen King. This is my wife, Melissa, and this is Hope and Asher and we live and serve in Southeast Asia. And tonight, we'll be reading from Luke 1, 26 through 38. Now this is, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David.
3: A season of expectant purposeful waiting for the fulfillment of the prophetic promises of scripture
0: a season of inspiration found in the remembering and retelling of the stories from the first advent as israel awaited the arrival of their messiah
6: as we reflect on the birth of jesus the incarnation of our creator god themes of
0: hope peace joy and love emerge teaching us now, in the second Advent, how to be purposeful in our waiting.
5: Encouraging those who lack hope.
6: Bringing
3: peace where there is strife.
5: Spreading joy to the broken.
3: And selflessly loving others. All the while looking forward to the return of Jesus and his good rule and reign in the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. Come, Come, Lord Lord Jesus. Come.
6: Gosh, as somebody who grew up in the South, I just, feels like everything I say naturally sounds a little dumber, so I'm a little envious of that. Hey, you know, speaking of growing up, I, I've, I'm not that old, but as long as I have been alive, which feels like longer than this conversation should be going on, most people around me have been talking like we are on the brink of the end of the world. Have you noticed that? Like, okay, so I was born in the 80s, so I, I came into being during the Cold War when the great danger was the commies coming for us, and I grew up watching the movies knowing that our only hope was Patrick Swayze coming in to save the day. Okay, so like that that was when I came, and we knew that Apocalypse was right around the corner because of that, the signs were all there, that the world was on the brink of collapse. And then that calamity went away, and, and so we started looking for new calamities. And, it, and throughout the 90s, it was the moral degradation of our society that you knew everything was coming apart. And then through my high school years, we, I, was, I was living through the war on terror, and we, we knew that like, th- this was the signs that everything was coming to an end. We had Al-Qaeda, we had ISIS, and, and we knew that, that we would not survive this as a planet And then we had economic collapse. We had a a housing crisis. And then suddenly we have our entire political system just come into question, right? And right now, people I talk to on both sides of the aisle are convinced that democracy as we know it is gonna end and it's the other team's fault. And you know, you got one stray bomb goes into Poland and everybody's ready for World War III. And the number of times that I hear like, This is it, right? Can't you just feel it? The world is so dark, and this is the moment that we are going to lose everything. Everything we hold dear is about to fall apart. Do you ever think that maybe that's just life in a broken world? I'm not denying the, the darkness of any of those things. I'm not denying how scary all of those things are. But do you think at a certain point, when humanity witnesses catastrophe after catastrophe, we would get the hint, there's something wrong with this place? This isn't new. I remember a little while back, somebody was telling me how unprecedented the times that we live in are. And they said, I mean, look at it. How do you get all of these things in a row? I mean, a worldwide pandemic, a financial collapse, and a war in Europe. When has that ever happened? I want to say, I think we went through that a little while ago. Like, we've been there. And you know what? Jesus actually said you'll be there. Jesus actually said you're going to see horrible things, wars and disease, persecution and disaster. And these are the signs that you should run and hide, right? Is that what he said? No. He said that's not the end. That's not it. And interestingly, if, if we just hit rewind on the clock, if we pull back a little bit from our moment that feels so overwhelming and so big, what we'll see is our moment doesn't look that different from moments that the people of God have been in for the existence of the world. In fact, last week, we look at, take a look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And if you think we know darkness, we don't know darkness like what Israel knew at this time. Israel watched over the course of about 150 years, both in the northern and the southern part of the kingdom, the entire nation be destroyed. Every significant institution burned to the ground the people chained up and taken away, first in Assyrian captivity, then to the Babylonian captivity. It was destroyed, and here's the really heavy part. It was their fault. God told them, this is because of your disobedience. And in that intense darkness that felt like the end, if anyone ever had a reason to say this, I think this is it. Like, I think this is the end of everything good. It is in the context of that darkness that we saw the passage we looked at last week. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Did you catch that phrase? Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. You know what the phrase no end means? It means it doesn't stop. You don't reach the termination point. There is no end. There is no coming to our end for the people of God. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This was the hope that we looked at last week. The hope of a promise of a child to be born. And, and in, that, in that prophecy, there's a word that comes up twice. It's the word peace. Now, the word peace uh, is the Hebrew word shalom. It's one of the most important words in the Hebrew vocabulary. It, it, is, it is so foundational. It's how they greet each other. You say hello and goodbye by saying shalom, shalom. And the word peace, shalom, in the Hebrew vocabulary, it means something uh, much deeper than simply the absence of conflict. That's the way we usually talk about peace, is when there's a lot of war going on, when the conflict stops, we've reached peace. But the concept of shalom means something so much more than just the, the noise and the conflict stopping. Shalom means life working the way it ought to. Shalom means humanity on earth thriving in a way that honors God as they enjoy life with God. And what what the prophet Isaiah is saying is he's saying when this person comes, when he is crowned king, there will be peace on earth. That stuff that we're so terrified comes to an end. Now, when Isaiah talks about this child to be born, this is not actually new information. Isaiah is referring to a promise that Israel already had, and it came in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's a king named David. And David is the most amazing king that Israel's ever had. He's he's a king after God's own heart. He writes most or many of the psalms that we have in our psalm book that teach us to praise God. Can you imagine having that kind of a leader? A leader for a nation whose passion was leading people in worship of the Lord? And David says, I want to build a beautiful house to honor God. And so he has this prayer and he says, Lord, I want to build this house for you. You know what God responds with? He says, David, I never asked you to build me a house. Actually, I want to build your house. And he gives him this promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. He says, when your days are over, David, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. The idea of the kingdom of God that will last forever. This is the hope that is put on David's son. And when David has a son named Solomon and he becomes king, do you know what the word Solomon means? Can you hear it? Shalomon. Solomon's name means peace. It is as if this, I have to believe that at the time, Israel thinks Solomon is it. He's the son we're waiting for. He's the son of David who's gonna bring peace. Shalaman, our peace. And over the course of Solomon's life, he's unfaithful to the Lord and he actually institutes oppression and forced labor in Israel. He builds his own palace in the palace of God by enslaving the the Israelite people and by putting a heavy burden on them of taxes. And somehow he's this mix of someone who honors the Lord but also does these horrible things. And by the end of his life, he completely turns his heart away from the Lord and betrays the Lord. And he starts Israel on the path that leads us to the darkness of Isaiah 9. Can you imagine the confusion in Israel? Can you imagine the disillusionment when they're told a son of David, David's son is gonna bring an everlasting kingdom of peace and David's son whose name is peace fails so utterly? Fast forward a thousand years later, Israel is still in darkness and everything still seems very, very bad. And now they're under the power of Rome and Rome is crushing Israel. People are dying. They're being taxed into starvation. And they're again asking, what's gonna bring peace? What's gonna bring the kingdom of God? And you've got all these people making their case. You've got the religious leaders claiming our plan, our program will bring peace. You've got freedom fighters who are saying, follow us to war. You've got Herod, who's compromised with the Romans, building a massive, beautiful kingdom. And then you've got Caesar And you know what the name Caesar gave for his reign was? Pax Romana, Roman peace. You know what Roman peace looked like for Israel? Crucifixion and beatings and slavery. And it's in this context, a promise from a thousand years ago that seemed lost and forgotten. And a people living in darkness that an angel shows up in a little town called Nazareth in Luke chapter 1. And so let's take a look. In Luke chapter 1, we read the story. And what we're going to see is that this angel shows up to a rather unlikely audience. To someone who has unearned favor and is going to hear about an unparalleled king. When we get introduced to the characters in Luke 1, uh, there's an interesting way that Luke rolls out this cast. Anytime, you know, think back to like, you know, sixth grade storytelling when you're learning about narrative. And one of the first things you learn about is characterization, right? Who are the characters and what do we learn about them? Well, we get a lot of clues in Luke chapter 1 of how we should think of these characters. Uh, The first people we're introduced to are these characters, Zechariah and Elizabeth. It says, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Like, if you're gonna list, like, the top 10 heroes of the nation of Israel, Aaron has gotta be in that list. He's the first priest. He's the one that established the worship and the sacrifice of Yahweh alongside his brother Moses. And here is Zechariah and Elizabeth direct descendants of this incredible heritage. If the light's gonna come, they would be good candidates, right? Read about this next character we meet. We meet someone by the name of Joseph. And it says there's a man named Joseph who is a descendant of whom? David. This is the one the promise is to, right? So surely the promise is gonna come to this man named Joseph, this descendant of the royal king, David. David but there's one more character we need to meet. And this character is introduced this way. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, to a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married. The virgin's name was Mary. I think this is incredibly deliberate on Luke's part. We introduces Zechariah and Elizabeth, he clues us in. They're from a really important family. When he introduces Joseph, he says he's from a really important family. When he introduces Mary, she's just some girl in Nazareth. Nothing impressive. No heritage to be proud of. Just a simple girl. And look at what the angel has to say. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Now, this word gets lost in translation. Do you know what that word favor is? It's the word grace the exact same word that throughout the New Testament story is going to describe how it is we become right with God. It is that we have nothing we can bring to the table to earn our standing with God, but rather as a gift of grace, God looks at us and says, you're in good favor with me. That word favor, um, it it maybe has lost a little bit of of its... Punch as what it means to be in good favor with someone. So I, I experience what it's like to not be in good favor with someone. There's this experience I have had before. I didn't clear this story before, but it's going to happen anyway. Um, when It is an it is experience I have when I can walk into a room and make eye contact with my wife and immediately know that I am not in good favor. And this panic sets in and the only thing I know to say is, what I do? Like, I don't, I don't know what's happening here, and we have to have a conversation and find out what happened to put me outside of good favor, right? And the goal is to get back into good favor, to be in good standing with somebody. She's wonderfully gracious, and it's always a very wonderful conversation. So, the, but the point here is that all humanity has moved out of favor with God, and God comes and makes an announcement to a girl who has no prestige, no history, nothing to have earned this, the the angel just shows up and says, Mary, God likes you. Like, God's really favorable toward you. He is delighted with you. You're in good standing with him. Grace. Sheer, utter grace. And then he goes on and makes an announcement. And hear this announcement the way I think everyone in Israel in the first century would have heard it. With the words of 2 Samuel 7 and Isaiah 9 ringing in their ears. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and we' be called the Son of the Most High, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Do you hear it? Do you hear the echo of the promise? That everything Solomon was supposed to be and failed to be? Jesus will now be this child that Mary is going to bear is the prince of peace. The one whose reign will make all things right in the world. Now, isn't it interesting that when Jesus grows up and when he goes out and begins his ministry and he goes out to start preaching, you know what the theme of his message is? The kingdom of God is here. And what he said offended everyone. It offended the religious leaders that were trying to establish the kingdom of God apart from him. It undermined their entire project. It offended Rome. It offended the claim that Caesar brought peace. That is immediately offensive for Jesus to show up and say, I'm bringing peace because Rome says, no, no, peace is already here. It's in us. And Jesus offers peace through his reign and his alone. Because the scandal of what Jesus said, the thing that was so offensive to both the Jewish and the Roman leaders, is that the peace that comes from the kingdom of God cannot be found apart from God's king. It is only in him that we will experience the shalom that God offers. And this is the announcement that that the angel makes to Mary, that all of the hopes of peace on earth come to their fulfillment in Jesus. So here's the question I want us to reflect on tonight. Where do you need peace? As I was thinking about this, um, at least three realms of my life became clear that we need peace. And, And as I thought about this, I recognized that we find ourselves somewhere in the middle. When we talk about Advent, the coming of Jesus, one of the things that we often recognize is that in some way, we're rehearsing history, right? We're reading stories anticipating something that already happened in the first coming of Jesus. But as we do that, we recognize that we're also anticipating a second coming of Jesus, which makes this idea of peace really interesting. Because in some ways, we're promised peace right now. And in other ways, we're still waiting for peace, which makes this a little bit complicated. People call this living in the already and not yet of God's kingdom. In some ways, God's kingdom is already real in our lives. and In other ways, it's not yet here, and we're waiting. And I think getting that tension right is crucial for what it looks like to walk with Jesus. So when we think about peace, one of the first things that comes to mind is internal peace. That, I don't know about you, but my internal life often looks like a war zone. The thoughts... The temptations, the anxieties, the lies racing in my head are disaster and destruction. And Jesus says that he wants to bring peace. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, he says that in in place of anxiety, with gratitude, bring your request to God and his peace that goes beyond anything you can understand will guard you and keep you. Let's bring that slide up with our our three pictures of peace. So if we're wanting to experience the internal peace of Christ, the invitation I think this Advent season is to begin to embrace his presence in our lives. What I think that looks like is actually everything that we do around here, around inviting people to pause and pray, around inviting people to spend time in the word of God, to praise together, to hear God's word, it is all a step to help us walk into embracing God's presence in our life. He's with us and wants us to acknowledge him. And I will confess, in about the last two months, my rhythms of being in Christ's presence completely collapsed. I got to the point where I was crazy overcommitted, I was barely waking up in time to make it to my first appointment. I was racing through my day until it got time to crash at night. And I had no room in my life to just stop and be in the presence of the Lord. And I noticed my internal life starting to just wind up and collapse. And I was meeting with my friend Gary, Gary Oliver, who we talk, we talk about a lot. Y'all got to hear from him. And he had the courage and the love to look at me and say, Nick, you're in a dangerous place right now. Something has to change. And he wasn't gonna let me get away with just, yeah, you're right, I'm gonna gonna do it. We actually sat there and he said, what's it gonna take? Like, what's it gonna take for something to really change so that you quit doing what you're doing and make room to be with the Lord? And so this this is what happened to me. This is what I had to do. I had to make a commitment that I don't do anything else in my day until I've spent time embracing the presence of Jesus in my life. And you know what that led to? It led to some really awkward moments. Because when I slept in and I had an appointment, it's happened multiple times in the last month, I've had to send a text that says, I'm really sorry, I'm gonna be 15 minutes late. I had to feel the sting because I had gotten into a habit of saying yes to everyone except for the Lord in my own personal life. And I had to ask the question, do I value time with the Lord enough to let some other things take a hit? In our relationships, in the world around us, in the cities, the neighborhoods that we live in, what does it look like to experience God's shalom there? I think it means we have to embrace his way of living. That Jesus actually shows us in his preaching what it looks like to live under his reign. That's what happens when he preaches about the kingdom of God. That's what's happening in Matthew chapters five to seven on the Sermon on the Mount when he's saying, this is what it looks like to live with me as king. And so if you wanna experience shalom in the world around you, you don't get there without obedience to Jesus. Here's what's interesting. Obedience to Jesus is not there to earn your standing with God. Look at Mary. God's favor is put on Mary of sheer grace. Obedience to Jesus is so that we can start to enjoy the shalom that comes from living his way. And these first two have to go together. If you try to obey the way of Jesus without enjoying the presence of Jesus, you're going to fall into that kind of legalism and that kind of outward living that breaks you. On the flip side, if you spend all this time with Jesus... And claim that he's transforming your heart, but don't let it touch any of your relationships. There's a shallow hypocrisy that will be exposed. But instead, I think he invites us to enjoy his presence to experience shalom internally and his way of living to experience it externally. But there is a not yet. There is a not yet that there comes a place that is beyond our sphere of influence, that there is a world that is broken that we will continue to see the brokenness of. And that will lead us to cry out and wait for his return. The reality of this should leave Christians between two ditches. Uh, one, let's call it triumphalism. It's the belief that before Jesus returns, we can establish the peace of God on earth. That we can fix the world's problems before Jesus gets back. And almost every single time in the history of the church anybody has embraced that thinking, at some point they have compromised the way of Jesus for a form of political power or reform that betrayed Jesus. They said yes to some hero, to some system, to some organizational power that at first looked like a Messiah and ended up being a tyrant. It looked a lot like Jesus and ended up being a lot more like Caesar. And so we avoid the triumphalism of assuming that we can solve the world's problems before Jesus comes back, but we also avoid the escapism that says, well, nothing can be done about the broken, nothing can be done about the brokenness in this world. So I'm just going to pray for Jesus to take me away and ignore the brokenness around me. And instead, Jesus calls us to a place where we embrace his presence and his way of living so that we start bringing God's shalom into the place around us while acknowledging that we await his return before the full experience of that. So here's what I want us to do right now. I want to take three or four minutes of just quiet. We're going to leave these on the screen. I want you to spend some time with the Lord asking the question, where do you need his shalom right now? Where do you feel that lack most profoundly? And what would it look like even tonight you to embrace his presence? Is there a new rhythm that needs to happen in your week this week to make room? What would it look like for you to embrace his way of living, a situation that you've not been yielding to him? And how can you practice in prayer awaiting his return and entrusting him to a world that is certainly falling apart, that he will come back and redeem? Just take a few moments between you and the Lord.
2: of peace has come, Emmanuel is with us and dwells with us, may we give him attention. Hey, whether in victory or in sorrow, if you'd like prayer tonight, uh, please come up to the banners, find one of us on stage, or find a friend next to you and ask to be prayed with. And um, if you're new, as always, well, you wouldn't know that if you're new, but if you're new, Go see someone in the info booth in the middle of the foyer. We'd love to meet you. And uh, have an awesome week. We love you so much. We'll see you later, Mosaic.